0: Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables which includes some of the top players from around the world Our objective is very simple We want to be able to educate entertain and energise the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through Hope you enjoy
1: our next podcast.
0: Welcome to episode 29 of Control the Controllables. Today we have James Trotman. James Trotman is currently an LTA coach. He works predominantly with the players on the Pro Scholarship Programme, consistent currently of Jack Draper, Paul Jubb, Aidan McHugh and Anton Matusevich. He's got years of experience as a player before an illness stopped him in his tracks and also as a coach working for the LTA but also Tennis Australia has worked with lots of top 100 players in the world. Um, Genuinely, I was desperate to get James onto the show. It's taken me a few weeks to persuade him uh, because he, he speaks so well. He's got such incredible insights and he doesn't disappoint at all sit back for the next hour or so take notes get your notebook out coaches you're going to learn a lot from this one over to James Trotman James Trotman welcome to the show Dan thanks for having me it's a pleasure I tell you what for those listening you enjoy this one I've been I've been chasing Trotters for a few weeks on this, so a a big thank you for giving me the time. A little introduction, Trotters, um, to to people listening. James Trotman um, genuinely, and he won't say this himself, but he's genuinely one of the best coaches that I've ever come across. Um, I, I think he's one of the shining lights in british tennis right now um, as a player himself he, he was a double junior grand slam doubles champion junior wimbledon and australian open um, and then as we'll get into tennis career playing career was cut a little bit short and and then went into coaching early and has, and has worked with lots of top 100 players worked in prominent roles in for tennis australia and the lta um, so lots lots of areas we can go into trotters um, but to start with, as we've done in this podcast, where did tennis start for you? That's a great question.
2: Um, and it was pretty simple, really. I came, grew up in a small village um, in Suffolk, um, just outside Ipswich. Local primary school, very village feel. It had the park where, you know, you had your swings and your football pitch. There was also a little local tennis club there called Sproughton um, Tennis Club, where my dad played a bit of kind of recreational stuff and club tennis and I'll be over there in the evenings with my mates from school kicking a football about, watching yeah. and just jumped on um, one day you know in between matches when they're waiting for another to finish. Yeah. Started hitting a few balls and it all all took off from there really.
0: And And how long, I guess, how long did it take for you to get into some form of structured tennis? Was it was it, you, you were at that club for a while or did it turn quite structured quite early? I mean, my wife always laughs at me because I've got a shocking memory. So,
2: I mean, it's, it's it's that long ago now. I was around seven or eight, you know, and I, I, I seem to remember things happen quite quickly for whatever reason. I got quite good quite quick. And yeah. then all of a sudden you're picked up through your, your county, yeah. county sort of training at t- county level, playing short tennis, moving yeah. through the short tennis um, and then you know, very much in the, you go through your county, then it was into the regional, from the regional, then you moved into the the national level, and it I can I can clearly remember that progression, um, but many many years ago now.
0: And did that so you because obviously we were we were Bisham Abbey together, the national yeah. tennis, national tennis school at the time. How old were you when you moved to the national tennis school? I was twelve. So you were young. Yes, yeah, so the, you know,
2: there probably a period of four years there. I mean, I remember the Bisham years pretty clearly, and and yeah. there's probably a four year period there from when I started playing to then going to the um, the National Academy, then out of Bisham Abbey at the time.
0: And and then and then this is because uh, you were a year older than me, and you were definitely you were the nineteen seventy nine that everyone talked about. So you were you were you obviously the top dog from quite an early stage. Uh, In terms of international exposure, what are your first international exposure memories?
2: Um, I I, I mean, the the trips I remember were, Mm -hmm. we used to go over to Italy Italy a lot. You know, Livorno, these runs of tournaments. Orange Bowl every year was was a big one. I remember getting over to the States and we used to train out of... um, Bob Butterfield's Academy. That's right. Yeah. Um, lead. You know, we had a week there leading into the Orange Bowl and, and those events. Um, so I think you know international exposure. Definitely, they're my first memories on of it, along with some international matches that we used to yeah. used to play. And you did you have some good success under 14s I was. I was. I was okay. I mean, I won the Windmill Cup. I don't know what age group yeah. that was. I mean, I 40, still think that's yeah. tournament's around now. So that was always a pretty big one internationally. I think I remember playing Xavier Melis, who was probably a year younger than me at some yep. point through that tournament. Um, and I was probably always the guy that was making kind of last eight of the Europeans typically or something like that.
0: Yeah. So, so and, and again, for people listening, you know, that's, you know, he's playing it down a bit there. Trotters was probably top 10 player in Europe for his age, but also had a hot head. I remember he had a bit of a hot head at that age any any memories of that
2: oh quite a few um (laughs) i I mean i I got banned several times through my junior junior days um i misbehaved at TARBs. you know I can i can remember it in one of those domes you know on the outside i was going nuts shaking the umpire's chair um i was serving a band actually and played uh, an international band so i couldn't travel internationally and i was playing gunnersbury uh, a, a tournament locally I was playing the 16s and 18s and I was I think I'd won the 16s I was in the file of the 18s in a set and a breakup and I got disqualified um I, you know so I had to go through the process of sitting in front of the LTA disciplinary panel um yeah. back at that stage and I mean they're all they're all great kind of learning tools you know I think along the way and I think you, you look back on these times as as especially in coaching you can look back on those kind of situations and learn from it it wasn't for a lack of effort or desire you know i just you know when things got too much it would boil over and yeah i could i could kind of lose my way
0: yeah exactly that and i think it's as a competitor were you were you a competitive kid like in, in at home was that in board games in in different things or did it just come out on the tennis court?
2: Still um highly competitive. I mean, every everything that I do, yeah, you can feel that competitive edge just jumps yeah. out, you know, and you don't want to lose. You know, you want to do whatever it takes. Whether it was football, <laughs> athletics, running at school, tennis, yeah. board games, like you said, um, you know. <laughs> My wife will joke about it now, even with the kids, you know, she'll see me wanting to beat them, which is a bit (laughs) bad,
0: really. And do you beat them? (laughs) Always, always. But no, because I think there's there's an interesting point on that, Trotters, because, and I've talked about this in a couple of the podcasts, it's when you want to win so bad you experience stronger emotions, you know, like it, when something goes wrong and I'm, I'm similar to you, I, I feel it now if I, if I, for me to compete with any of the kids at the academy of any decent level, I've almost got to get the fire in my belly. But once the fire's in my belly, I'm, I'm always quite close to it boiling a little bit. Do you think, do you think there was enough kind of strategies and tools in place for us back in the day on that? Other than just calm down, it's it's a really good question and one
2: I'm not sure I've got the answer for. Um, I'm I'm a big believer in maturity, um, and, and information, and just being engaged in the process is what matters. Yeah, and and I think it takes time. Um, I, you know that you know there's obviously tools and things which I think all of this should be, do- especially at the younger age, should be going through the coach. Yeah. You know, at the younger age, you can be teaching them about routines. I think you're trying to put things in perspective as well, yep. you know, which is highly important. And and a big thing for me as a coach that I've I've used historically is that you reframe what winning is. I yep. think it's important that you start to look at, well, winning isn't just, I, I got the match, you know, it was 6-4 in the third sense to me. Yep. There, there's other aspects of that. It's about your behaviours. Yeah. It's about what you're trying to do, how you're trying to develop, yes. how you handle situations, what your intentions are. And yeah. actually, if you can go out there and fulfill those um, around, you know, having some, some simple goals and processes going yeah. into matches, actually, you can learn to win every time. Yeah. And I know that sounds a bit, a bit corny and a bit, a bit strange, but I'm a big believer that you can kind of, you're trying to reframe what winning looks like, I think, which can be massive for players.
0: No, it's, a, it's a it's a great answer it really is and I think it's it's an unbelievable it's an unbelievable insight into somebody who was and this is a game for people listening somebody who was a genuine international level player from from a young age can can actually hold their hands up and say well actually <laughs> i I struggled with that when I was younger, but I think it just then puts you in much a much stronger place to be able to have empathy for people that are then going through that as, as, as players now. Do you find that, or do you find that so much time has passed that sometimes we have to almost reset ourselves and remember what it's like to be young again?
2: Yeah, a little bit. And the older I get, the, the more distant you feel from that, the age groups coming through, you know, that connect feels bigger. But I, I, I'm, always, I'm always sympathetic, I think, to people who are having issues and trying to deal with them. Yeah. And I have no problem with that. You know, yeah. uh, it's my job as a coach to help. You know, yeah. that's what I'm there to do. And as long as I feel a willingness to go on a journey
3: yeah. and
2: to engage with me, that's yeah. that's all I ask for. You know, for, and and I'm at the point where level, ranking, that stuff, it's it's kind of secondary to me. It's about the journey that you're going to go on. It's about developing yourself and helping to develop people. You know, it's not just about winning tennis matches as well, which I think we get caught up in. Very, very few players are actually going to go on to make it. So part of our job as well is we've got to make sure that these kids are going to be better, more rounded, better adjusted, you know, because they might go on to have a coaching career. They might go on to have a job in business. It might impact the way they interact with their families and and children themselves at one point. So I, I very much see that. As part of our role as coaches as well. And of course, when you go on that journey and you get a player who really takes off and has an exceptional career, that's fantastic as well. But not everybody's going to. And I think that's
0: that's the reality. I will work with anyone who has a willingness to engage with me, is an unbelievable takeaway, you know, and it's you know, I it's certainly something I feel as a coach. I think it's something we talk a lot about as as coaches at the academy, to any players from Soto Tennis Academy or any players anywhere else, that genuinely is all we're after as coaches. You know, it's not, we're not after you playing your best tennis every single day, we're not after you hitting the best running forehands, we're not after you winning every match, but we are after you having a willingness to, to engage on a day, day-to-day basis. Unbelievable, Chottas. Can I come back to one more point, Dan, do you no, mind, on the, on the
2: competitiveness? Is That's that Okay. okay. Because so many years since I competed, really, you know, yeah. tennis, it's, we're going 20-odd years now. And for a few years after, I'd still play maybe a little bit of county Cup or whatever, but my lungs were shot, basically, the illness that I got that meant I had to stop playing earlier. Um, but I've recently started playing a little bit of paddle. Yeah. Um, and I can, you know, I can just about handle that physically. It's great fun. But when I lose, it hurts. Yeah, yeah. And this is a really important thing. I've forgotten what that was like and it's only a fun kind of game but when you lose something it gets you again yeah. you know and that that was really important to me and and, and it makes you empathize again with the players you've yeah. got to remember this is but it's also part of learning you know going through this process is a big thing I believe in and something um, I spoke to a coach about recently around social media and players yeah. To to learn you need to feel that hurt you know you need to be in the real world and and kind of experience that loss and go through it and what happened and what went on. And social media for me today is a massive um, barrier to to kids learning and developing. They come off the court. What's the first thing they do? They're on their phones. Yeah, You know, they're posting on social media or somebody speaking to them and they remove themselves from the situation. Yep. You know you've got people saying it's okay, don't worry, you know it's it's fine, you know you're going to win the next, you play great. all of this sort of stuff, whereas actually you need that little bit of time, I think, to reflect yep. and stay in the real world and absorb what's happening before obviously you move on, and it of course you're going to get tough, you know tough luck, you know great effort, really good match, you're going to reflect in other ways. but that it's just something I wanted to bring up actually.
0: I think it's a, again, it's a great point, really, really good point. You know we would be i remember like when we traveled i remember actually being in i remember being in singapore where i was playing uh like an itf tournament and i'd lost a really close match and a match i think i had match points and i remember being absolutely devastated and i couldn't get a hold of my parents i remember we really want like i i didn't really crave speaking to my parents that frequently But the hurt was so bad from this match. And I'm talking like two hours after before I was even at the hotel where I might get to a payphone. And I remember like trying to call them, trying to call them, couldn't, you know, they they were out, they were out. And then actually, eventually, a bit of a funny end to this story. My mum picked the phone up and there was me wanting to kind of spill my heart out about this match. And it turns out that it was actually her birthday and I'd, forget, I'd actually forgotten her birthday so she'd be she'd been out for her birthday so not only had i got the hurt of this match but i'd gone and absolutely made a fool of myself and made my poor mom upset as well but it, it's an amazing point you know really really good point and um moving moving into the bisham years you you know we've had we've had barkers on the podcast everyone's been loving Chinky's um podcast as well what what are your what are your memories and takeaways from that time i mean overriding great fun
2: i mean above all else it was it was a i think i think um barkers and his his wife who sadly passed away a number of years ago now jackie managed to create a real family feeling you know i really felt like everybody there was an extended family yeah um I mean i learned a hell of a lot through barkers as well as many other coaches you know after barkers and along the way but definitely had a huge influence on on myself um fantastic guy who i'm still in contact with now still he's still as passionate as ever as i'm sure you realized um recently about tennis and and the journey and the life it's given him um and it, it was you know it's 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 kind of yeah it's kind of weird looking back that far now but overriding for me just an amazing experience having a group of guys together like that pushing each other you know chasing each other creating that competitive kind of spirit I think it's 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 important as well for for development
0: yeah and do you um, I think it's just an interesting question not to try and say that you would but do you have any regrets from those junior years? Do you think there's anything you could have done different? Anything that, you know, on reflection that you look back on, or or, or do you, it feels as if you've actually very much distanced yourself from your playing career? It, yeah, it's, just, it's it's it is another. I mean, it's it's it's
2: kind of we're talking 22, 23 years ago since I really played anything competitively, which is yeah, a huge amount of time. You know, I played for. I've been coaching longer than I played, yeah. and um, I started coaching at an incredibly young age. Through kind of what happened, I'm um, I, I, I guess I'm quite—I'm I'm not somebody that dwells on the past. I can't afford to. Yeah. It's—it's so it's, it's always easy in hindsight to look back, you yeah. know. And I—I I tend, yeah. Well, I reflect, of course, but I'm not going to dwell on it. Yeah. And. Are there things I could have done differently? Are there things I would have done differently? Absolutely, but some of those were out of my control. Yeah. So it's it's not something I'm gonna, yeah. You know, like I just said, I'm not I'm not gonna dwell on it. I mean, leaving home at 12, and what I've learned is I I I you know, and it's to my detriment at times, I deal with things on my own. I solve problems on my own. Yeah. I'm not great at sharing, potentially, yeah. and I think that was a result of possibly. You know, leaving home at 12 and going to this new place, um, which that probably has its pluses and its minuses. Yes. I think one big regret for me was the mentality I had. Yeah. You know, you you can be a very good player in the UK, and yeah. you, you 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 that that big fish in a small pond. And yeah. you know, if I look back on my mentality, I definitely I fell into that that category. You know, yeah. and. The reality is it's tough, and you can't get complacent yeah. and you've got to keep pushing and 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 striving and challenging yourself yeah. on a daily basis you know it's the nature of this sport yeah. and yeah. any kind of complacency well it's okay you know i lost I lost there in the quarters that's okay because i I beat everybody domestically yes you know you, you can't get caught up in that kind yeah. of um, scenario well i 'll be selected for the next trip because i 'm still the best
3: yeah
2: and I do think back then um, you know that that 's one thing I definitely look back on, and I think maybe could have been handled better, yeah you know or is it my personality
0: that's you know it's a uh, tough tough to really make that call do you think is that do you think that's still part of the British tennis culture with juniors that they have that kind of hoping that another player loses and if if i win because there was i definitely have had those thoughts you know you'd win your first round and maybe a couple of other guys lost first round so you were the top brit in the tournament and you
1: there was definitely a bit of that vibe do you think it's still there
2: oh it's tough to say i mean i think you know we we, i think there's been a lot of success at the the top end of british tennis now yeah which i i hope feeds down and gives a lot more hope and belief to players that they can break through and they can be professional tennis players and they can you know live with the world's best players and i think probably through our generation we 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 didn't have that quite as much
3: yeah
2: um i think i think it probably still does exist and i think it probably it's not just british tennis it's a this is it's a worldwide,
3: yeah.
2: or certainly it's other countries, it wouldn't just be the UK. And I know you mentioned earlier that I spent some time at Tennis Australia. One of the, one of the things for me was I, my perception of Australians and Australian tennis players was you know, these guys are pretty tough, they're
3: yeah.
2: good competitors, they're you know, they're, they're, these guys are resilient, and all of these things. And it's going to be maybe different to the players I worked with in the UK. Yeah. um, and I went over there, and you're dealing with the same things, yeah the yeah. same insecurities, the same strengths, the same weaknesses, the same challenges, the same highs, the same lows it actually it it didn't change much,
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah you know,
2: which surprised me a little bit at the time,
0: yeah and and is there any way that we can as coaches help with that you know how do we how how do we get to the bottom of that if that is you know you've got let's say we you've got four or five you know talented for lack of a better word players who who maybe have a little bit of that is there is there any ways that you could share with us that that can be prevented i mean, these are great questions
2: because i think these are the questions as coaches we you know you probably yeah. find yourself asking yourself this absolutely yeah and and i think if it if if, if it was if it was the, if there was a definitive answer yeah it would it'd almost be too easy yeah yeah you know I'm, I'm a great i'm a great believer that there's an art to coaching there's a skill to coaching yeah and that very much you know it plays into the hands of the coach could be you could be me yeah. um could be could be anybody else and the relationship that you're building with parents with yeah. players yeah. it's the din- it's the conversation you have over dinner sometimes yeah. um it's when you put you know the, the arm around to offer support it's when you you know a little bit harder on them because maybe something hasn't it's asking the questions to help them learn help yeah. their help their self-development so i don't i don't think it's anything as straightforward as there's a definitive to it yeah. i think this is co- this is this is coaching and yeah. the good coaches have a, have a knack and a skill at yeah. being able to bring the players along on that journey, educating them, making sure you're instilling belief and confidence, yeah. but equally keeping them grounded when you need
0: to. Well that that take that little snippet, coaches listening to that as a as a, as a coaches manual, you know what's just been said. That there again is it's incredible, trotters, and it's it's I, why I genuinely love speaking to you about tennis because i think i think you you've got so much wisdom in in those things and i think that's a that's another fantastic fantastic answer and i'm gonna take you back a little bit i know your um your passion for coaching comes through and, and and i actually i remember you when you were like 16 17 coaching us a little bit at bishop actually you know when you you'd started to have some of your illnesses and and I think you always had such a natural way. Like I remember, even though you're only a year older than me, I remember you held the court at, at that age. And and I want to get into a couple more coaching bits. But before I do, you're a junior Grand Slam champion, you know. So you and Wimbledon. That's that's one of my favorite tennis memories. And I remember we had to travel to Tunisia. We'd watched up until the semi-finals, and on the finals day, we had to travel to Tunisia or somewhere, and we missed the final. And we managed to watch it somewhere on TV. Talk to me about that. You and Marty Lee winning, winning Junior Wimbledon, incredible. Yeah, I mean, look, it was a, a great experience. It
2: came out of the blue. I mean, really, I was, I was 15 as well at the time, so um, 15, 16. I can't. I was a fit, I, for some reason, I got 15 in my head, but. Yeah. I was young. I was two, three years young. Yeah. So it was really highly unexpected. And you just kind of remember, I mean, me and Marty played a lot of ITF juniors together. So we, we built up a, a, Martin clearly was a, you know, a very good tennis player, went on to make top 100 in yeah. the world himself and, and beat some fantastic um, players. So we, we teamed up well. We, I remember playing grade five ITFs, grade four, grade three, all yeah. through the ITFs. European Championships, Orange Bowls, Summer Cups. So we played a lot together, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, that that year at Wimbledon, we got through the first round, got through the second, we find ourselves in the the final, um, playing Mariano Puerta, who himself went on to make um, final in uh, Paris um, and had some doping issues through his career. Um, And a guy called Alejandro Hernandez, who was a Mexican, Davis Cup, went on to play Davis Cup for Mexico, also a good player. And I remember going there, it was on the old court one, and we were saying to Barkers, do you think anybody's going to (laughs) be, you know, there, Barkers? you know, what's it going to be like? Ah, no, Trotters, it's going to be empty. Just me and a couple of old, you know, leaves rustling around, mate. (laughs) And uh, so we, we were there preparing and going, walking to the court, and we walk in there and the court's packed. Yeah, you know, court one was, was packed on, on the, uh, I think it was the Sunday and all of a sudden that kind of hit you and you're in a haze and we went, I think we went a break or double break down first set and came back from there and I just I remember one thing Barker's and I still remember it to this day, Barker's was a big you know, Trotters, he said, the biggest point of the match, make sure you cross you know, it was always a thing like he used to talk about and instilling us as doubles players and so I remember it being match point, it's a pretty big point, point. Yeah. and, um, you know, uh, I've just sort of said I'm going, whatever happens, I'm going,
3: yeah.
2: and I've crossed, I've got the backhand volley, managed to nudge it away somehow, and, and that's probably my, my, the memories that I've got of it.
0: Yeah, incredible, my memory, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember it, but we, again, going back to the kind of family at Bishop and i know we've touched on kind of british tennis players or, or or global juniors sometimes not wanting their peers to win and things like that i remember us desperately wanting you guys you know we would travel in, in the in the discovery every single day and we'd rock up to wimbledon and i remember the semi finals was on court 2 i believe the, the old court 2 which is court 3 now um and i remember the excitement levels that we had. So then, the next day we flew off, and wherever we were, and I think it was me, Chinky, Jimmy Nels, and we were watching the men's final. That was what it was. We were, and I think I'm sure Boris Becker was in the final. It was, was Becker, yeah. Yeah, and and he and we could genuinely hear this cheering, or, or when you, we were watching this television in, it might have been Kuwait we were in, and we were watching the telly. And we were like, oh my god, because back in those days we couldn't follow the result. And then Becker came out. I don't know if you remember this, but Becker came out after the match, after he played the men's Wimbledon final. And he said, oh, 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 he turned, no, that's right. He turned around to the umpire and he said, you mean to tell me there's something bigger going on than the men's Wimbledon final today here at Wimbledon? You know, and that was like, that's how big it was. It was loud. It was, you know, it was incredible. And I, and I still regret that we weren't there to see it, and and then your second your second Grand Slam triumph, um, a one that for me actually because it was with my doubles partner, Mister Sherwood, and I was I was sent I was sent to South America to toughen up, <laughs> so <laughs> so rather than rather than going and playing the Australian Open, I went to Colombia, Peru, Bolivia to get duffed up by a few South Americans. Um, and, you and you and Dave won the, won the doubles there as well. How, what, was, what was that like? I guess you played a more senior role in that that time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean Dave as well was a fantastic player and a great doubles player. I, I mean, it, again, it, it's a funny kind of thing. I remember, you know, I never used to have the greatest of serves. And, yeah. you know, it's one of the few times you're playing there and they had the speed gun on the court. And I, me- I remember Davey Sher joking you reckoned I overtook my serve on the way to the net. It was like, I think, the, sl- the slowest first serve registered at the Australian Open that year. But I'll tell you what, I made a bloody good first volley. <laughs> and uh, that probably made up for it. But, um, yeah, th- I mean, that was, that was a couple of years after the Wimbledon yeah. When The year before that, me and Marty had lost in the final of... Um, we'd lost in the final, actually, there in Australia to uh, Brachali and Robichaux. Okay, a couple of, you know, good good players again, and and um, yeah, are nice memories. I remember playing actually uh, a, 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 an Aussie guy called Nathan Healy one year in the juniors down there.
3: Yes. Yeah. And the
2: heat, the heat. They hadn't put the heat rule in place then, I don't think, just yet. Yeah. And it was it was one of those days where it was unbelievably hot, and I think I was five two forty love down against Nathan Healy in the third set, and I ended up beating him something like thirteen eleven. Right. In the third, and um, actually went on to coach Nathan a little bit at his time right. when I was at TA. Um, great guy. Um, I think he's over in the living over in the States now. No, yeah. he's, back in, sorry, he's back in
3: Australia. He's, he back, is, he's Australia,
0: back in Australia. Yeah. He, is, he is. No, I remember that. I remember Barker's feeding back to us that Trotters has just won 13 11 in the third. In like sixty-five degrees, it was something you know. He'd gone like, and I mean, it was. I'm sure it was hot, he, but it was. He, he
2: probably added at least ten.
0: Yeah, you could fry an egg. You could fry an egg on the court. There were frying eggs and all sorts. Um, and I remember it coming back to us. And and as we, I guess, moving into now trotters and and, and maybe leading into it, I, uh, I remember, I remember playing you, and in in like a British touring Hull. and you were you were a much better player than me. The, the years before and, and I, I remember playing you and you, you just couldn't compete physically and, 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 I, and I, I, I remember winning the match and for me on paper it was a fantastic win and you know somebody a year older than me and James Trotman who's done this but I remember being really sad as I walked to the net because you just weren't you'd obviously been out for a while and you were trying to come back to play, but you just you didn't have the energy to be able to play. For those listening, what what was it that stopped you playing? What was the illness that you had? You know, and how did it come about, and that side of things?
2: Yeah, I, re- I remember that match, and I think you're being a bit hard on yourself. Um, but I I, 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 was, I was I was 17. I was around 17. I picked up a virus. I mean, it's quite kind of relevant with what's going on in the world now with covid and corona um i picked up a virus i was ill like anybody else would be ill you know turned to bronchitis felt pretty pretty bad antibiotics cleared up when when the infection had gone i couldn't walk up the stairs you know i was getting out of breath you know it's like what's going on here i couldn't run i couldn't exercise just for getting out of breath yeah and so you know initially they thought that it, i did sort of developed some kind of asthma so i took all these different steroids different different drugs to no no avail and this went on for about a year until I, you know the specialist that i saw took a cat scan they eventually took a cat scan and they found scarring on my bronchioles yep. so the virus i would had had basically attacked my bronchioles and left them scarred so i was sort of working at 30 40 percent of my capacity which has been the same ever since actually and it was it was a shock well a major shock at the time yeah. um and it's something i haven't looked back on too much actually until now recently
3: yeah.
2: and you know obviously you know having a lung condition through this period i, I got put on the the vulnerable list you know from the nhs yeah, And it, it kind of brought things home again, probably how serious yeah. it is. And for a number of years, I've just, I've carried on. It's okay. This is fine. You know, put it in the back of your mind. And it's probably been a bit of a wake-up call to me, actually, that I need to look after myself a bit better. I need to start exercising again. Little bits. There's not much I can do. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got two young children. So that, on a more serious note, probably highlighted to me right now that these things that i need to do
0: and how do you feel i guess you talked to me before the show that you you going back to work next week you know so obviously the shielding's being dropped i guess how, how do you feel about going back into the world as such
2: well i'm, I'm going to be working from home originally okay. so on the on the shielding as it stands unless it's changed recently is i'm still to stay inside actually okay. apart from an hour's ex- exercise a day okay so I'm lucky enough, you know, we live, you know, in Wimbledon, so I've been getting out on the common every day. I tend to go we've had a lot of rain the last week or so, so I tend to go when it's raining. Yeah. There's less people around. Um, but, yeah, I don't really know what the future holds from that aspect. It's one of those things, again, I'm not going to try and predict it too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm looking forward next week to Battle of the Brits. Yeah, you know, There's going to be some great, great tennis on there, watching the boys compete
3: yeah.
2: again and so that's going to give me plenty to do from home with those matches being streamed yeah right. and you know one step at a time i think for now it's tough to predict i think where we're all going to be in 6 months time
0: yeah no, it is it is and 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 obviously it's 22 23 24 years Trotters, which you've you've had plenty of time to accept and you move move on going back then was it was it that that must be a really difficult thing for you to accept and I was we were close to you but I probably didn't appreciate it at the time how how difficult that would was be so what are your reflections on that
2: um I think initially it was more uh you know I I I kept training for about a year you know with you know you're kind of kidding yourself a bit and hoping things will change but so there was a year of probably not playing, just trying treatments, trying this, until the realization kind of hit home, Well, I'm not going to be physically fit enough. And then it was, I think, it, you know, it was limbo. And, and, and that's a big thing for me. You know, my education had always been secondary. Yeah. And all of a sudden, just like that, you know, your dreams and aspirations of what you were after were taken away from you. Yeah. And I definitely felt, you know, 17, 18 years old, you know, a bit lost i yeah. um, not sure what I was going to do. And that's originally just how I fell into coaching. Yeah. You know, I remember you know, my parents you know, going back home. I had to go and work in Tesco's, stacking the shelves. had to earn some money. And that, that was what it was like, which, which I appreciate from them. It's not, you know, you're not just going to sit around, you get out there and do something. Yeah, yeah. And rather than stacking shelves at Tesco's, I thought, well, I might as well start coaching. Yeah and and at that stage having just played so recently the aspiration wasn't there to make it you know a full time job necessarily or to move into performance or yeah. it was just i've got to start coaching you know get some money yeah. and and that's where it it started
0: um, so where was that where where was your first that, that,
2: that was back in suffolk okay um and you know originally i was i was you know i could still hit a decent ball you know even but it was just you know, I couldn't really physically handle much. So I remember hitting with some good, some of the better local players. I remember doing some of the county coaching.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, not long after that as well, I, I worked out in the Manga for a year with Fraser Wright. Did you? And I did the main kind of holiday swings. Yeah. And that was also great education. You know, you, you're working from eight in the morning to eight at night with two hours off in the afternoon, six days a week. Yeah and you know out in the sun and churning out the hours the yeah. squads squads all the squads through the mall well one individual then you had the adult squads then you had the junior squads yeah. then you had a two hour break for lunch and then from three to five no sorry three till eight at night into yeah. 45 minute individuals all the way through
3: yeah
2: every day you know you're, you're jam-packed different people different personalities different values of what they wanted what they actually wanted to get from the sessions
3: yeah um,
0: and that was a, that was a great experience actually yeah and do you think that again I, I don't know who it was but i've definitely had this discussion over the last few weeks good tennis players going from off court immediately into i think it might have been hilts actually but straight into coaching players you know, without, you know, do you think that's helped you as a coach having, you know, just coaching anyone and everyone and, and failing a bit and learning the skills and being creative and, you know, learning to communicate with different styles, you know, all of that. Do you think that's something that maybe our our young coaches or coaches that are were players coming out of playing career should look to do?
2: I think so. I mean... know it it was it wasn't it wasn't a deliberate decision by me it was just where the work was but i i think you know having to handle all those different situations like you said and and be creative and and handle groups of eight players on a court and different levels of players different standards it was it was yeah it was great and you know the one thing that applies to you know, that type of coaching that will apply to coaching at the highest end of performance coaching is you still got to have a relationship with these people. You know, you've you've got to be able to understand them. You've got to be able to communicate. You've got to be able to listen and you've got to make it fun. You know, tennis should be fun, you know, and it should should be challenging, especially the better that you become. It needs to be challenging. Sometimes it's not going to be as much fun, but you're still going to walk away with that sense of satisfaction, you know? You know, God, that was difficult today, and I didn't enjoy aspects of that, but I got
0: through it, and that that yeah. makes me feel good. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And what what I for? Because I did the same probably for five or six years. And some of my big lessons were trying to link into the purpose that someone was coming to tennis, and not just assuming that it was to get better at tennis. <laughs> you know, like, and 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 that's or or might be getting better at tennis, but it's varying ambitions, varying. You know, rather, and when I first started, I just thought everyone was coming for me to really teach them and, you know, help them. And, and I and I got kind of pushed back flat on my face a couple of times. And and I, I'm really grateful for that time period because I think it does help you understand that you don't want to start coaching anyone until you know what the purpose is of where you're going. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, and I can remember clearly some of those
2: lessons, but people just wanted to talk to me, really, right. for 45. Yeah. <laughs> They actually weren't that interesting in many balls. It was literally they wanted a conversation.
3: Yeah.
2: Others wanted to improve. They wanted to play better doubles or they wanted the serve to be better. Others just wanted to do something physically, you know, yeah. and there were probably some who didn't want to be there. So you, you had a whole mix and varieties
0: of, of those things,
2: which I think was, yeah, it was fun.
0: Absolutely. So where did you, your kind of performance world, working with kind of a aspiring
1: professional tennis players where did that start for you um so i'm trying to think
2: how it would have come about i i did some so i was still hitting a pretty good ball back then so i was doing some i was i think the first thing i did there was a, an american player called Alexander stevenson that's right yeah. who actually went on to make you know she made semifinals of wimbledon and, and yeah I, I I started actually a hitting job with her over one Wimbledon.
3: yeah,
2: and I think you know we kind of got on well. And so for about a year or eighteen months, um I was kind of hired as the hitting coach, you know yeah. as a eighteen nineteen year old um and and that was my first kind of dip into performance tennis and and again, you know, the, the, the real great thing about that, another Australian coach who was working for the USDA at the time was a guy called Ray Ruffles, yeah. who, you know, was, was a very good tennis player himself. Um, the old school Australian generation. So he'd learned a lot from Harry Hopman and these kind of philosophies. And coached the Woodies, was, was most famous probably for coaching the Woodies. Jason Stoltenberg and all of these yeah. players. And so he was working for the USDA and would be a travelling coach. So I got to spend a lot of time with Ray as well, learning from him. Yeah. And I remember one day, this is a funny story actually, we were sat down. Ray used to like to have a beer at the end of the day. So, you know, we'd we do the coaching, you'd take me somewhere. We were in Sydney actually and she'd beaten Capriati, who was number one in the world at the time. Wow. And we went and sat down and had a beer and he's like, uh oh, Trotz, you know, tell me what the secret of being a great coach is. Yeah. And so I'm there and I'm thinking, well, you know, you know, awareness of standards, you know, being able to, you know, make an impact on your player, great tactical awareness. And he's just sitting there laughing, you know, <laughs> he's sniggering away and I'm, you know, saying all these things and I go, well, Ray, what is it? He goes, Trotters, the secret of being a great coach is finding the best players. And um, that's something that's, that's resonated with me. And, and to, you know, look, I think to a point, That's true.
3: Yeah, and
2: and I think as as a performance coach, you create your own luck.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And you need to get out there. You need to make sacrifice. You need to be highly motivated and passionate about what you do.
3: Yeah.
2: And if you have an inquisitive mind, you're going to learn a lot, and you're going to pick things up.
0: Yeah. but, But yeah, that's that was how it all started, anyway. And then, how many years? Did you travel? I mean, uh, I guess, you, I know you do some traveling now, but you were kind of a pretty much a dedicated traveling coach for a long time, huh? I mean, I, I was,
2: you know, I haven't really done a year where I haven't been away. You know, recently it's dropped off a bit, but it was, you know, some, some years in Australia, I was working 40 weeks on the road. Wow. 20, 25 to 40 weeks, that would be typically through my career, yeah. what I've done, and again, I mean, most players I have to stress that I've worked with have been kind of youngest would be 16 probably, but more 17, 18, 19, 20 and onwards, some yeah. even a bit older. Yeah. And for me, that's where the job's done and it's on the road. You can't yeah. hide from it. Yeah. Um, you've got to get on the road and you've got to get out there with the players. And it's it's a powerful environment. You know, you know, It's a lot easier to have an impact when they've just won a match yeah, or yeah. they've just lost a match, you know, and you've got to try and get them to see what's happened and learn from those experiences. They're a lot more open to it. Yeah. And the nature of professional tennis is you've got to travel.
0: Yeah. And what have been, I guess, for one of my pet peeves that I, you know, you hear, you hear from, I guess, cynical coaches are oh, oh, that whoever, whoever is working with this player now what an easy job that is, just sitting in the box, <laughs> you know, or sitting in this or sitting in that. Can you talk us through the realities of the difficulties of a travelling coach?
2: Well, I think I think the biggest one that we've just talked about is, look, you know, the, 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 I think that the, 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 the jobs change a little bit, you know. If you're working with a really top, top player, you're going to handle them a little bit differently to how you're trying to work with somebody who's, 300 500 in the world and you're trying to push to top 200 top top 50 top 100 you know it 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 does change and i think that again that's the feeling that you're going to have as a coach i mean the pressure that comes with performance coaching is high you live and you live and die by it you know so if if players aren't winning that falls on your head typically and as a coach that you've got to be the one that takes responsibility for that and that's that drive that's what gives you the drive the motivation to get up do those early morning sessions to work every weekend to get out there and and travel and the sacrifice that comes with it it, it's tough you know it's it's not a lot of the traveling and coaching i've done hasn't been to tour events it's been to the best junior events it's been to futures it's been to challenges and of course some of it has been at tour level but you know it's 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 hard you know, and you have to sacrifice a lot, and you have to be extremely passionate about what you do to yeah. take this
1: job on.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, and how many years did you work in tennis Australia? Um, I think it's about five or six. I was there for and um, in Australia, because didn't you then base? Weren't you based out of the UK for part of it? So when I, when it started, they had a base
2: out of Sutton Tennis. Um, academy right okay and um the head coach at the time was a guy called brent larkham who's actually just recently been reappointed there i think they've got a a, i don't know what the name of it is a national academy in brisbane
3: yeah but
2: he's been reappointed there as the head coach and it was the australian institute of sport and tennis australia had come together to form a partnership instead of working independently so we were we were under the australian institute of Sport banner uh based out of sutton when they were you know traveling basically which was a lot of the year and we'd be spending october november december january february probably those five months in australia yeah so that was the setup for the first few years and then that everything got moved back into canberra actually so then more time in australia again and you know for the aussies for them to you know, I, I I left Australia one year in February with a guy called Robert Smeets and he yeah. didn't go back home until after the US Open. Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: You know, and that's, that's pretty typical for them, you know, yeah, yeah. being where they're located. You know, we, we sometimes worry about a three-week trip yeah. here in the UK and people get a bit precious about it. They'll get on the road for six months, no
3: problem.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, I know we touched on it earlier and you said kind of, one of the things I wanted to delve into, I guess, was a, a little comparison between the Australia and, and, and the UK. And you said that in terms of the, uh, they've got the same insecurities, I think you've given a fantastic difference there. You know, John Millman also spoke about that in the podcast we did with him last week, that he would- I've got, a, was, great, I've
2: got a great story about John. Yeah. You know, which, which, I mean, the guy's amazing. You know, and hats off to him, incredible player, and he's yes. earned everything, um, everything that he's got. We went down to Spain, so we also had a little base down in Spain with Felix Mantilla. yeah. And I took down um, Sam Groff, yeah, and um, who I was coaching at the time, and John came along. John Millman came along on the trip, yep. so we we were down in Spain. It was we were playing the the futures on the clay through like February. Yeah. all around Barcelona and yeah. it was heavy well, one day it snowed actually up at Felix's place and you can imagine Groffy trying to play yes. on that heavy clay I mean it was a disaster of a trip for him but we were we were doing physical we were doing the physical work one day hill sprints yeah. and uh John said "I oh, look can I join in it's like absolutely you know come along you know you're gonna do um Groffy's training so we we're doing these hill sprints Run to the top of the hill, walk back down. You know, standard stuff, the repetitions of it. And off his own back, John would um, run to the top of the hill, drop down and do 20 push-ups before yeah. he came back down. Yeah. And it, it, it just added in. He, yeah. lost, he lost a match to, I think it might have been to, maybe to Bautista, I think, or somebody or he'd beaten him. He lost a match and Groffy was following it and John wasn't happy about his serve. And I'm there obviously watching, watching Groffy the whole time. And John's gone off, off his own back, box of balls. I can see him on one of the back courts. The whole of the three-set match that Groffy played, John was out there working on his serve. Right. To the point where he actually got a sore shoulder because he'd, he'd overdone it. But that was the level of motivation
3: yeah,
2: that,
0: yeah. that that guy had. It was insane. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, speaking, speaking to him was, it was mesmerizing actually, because he was just, you could just feel it. He oozed it. He oozed like complete dedication, discipline, ownership, you know, all of these things to. And the the setbacks he's had, injuries,
2: you know, through his career to keep, keep coming back, keep coming back. That's some mental
0: strength that guy has. Yeah, no, unbelievable. So on that, if you were,
1: to give me three things that you need to be a top hundred ATP or WTA player, what would it be? Fearless. Yeah, I think you think you
2: know, to the, especially the way that tennis is now, you need to be fearless. Yeah, you need you need a confidence. Yeah, that comes with it, and and again, I've been around a lot of players, but the very best ones that they're they dips. A, a smaller,
3: yeah.
2: You know, it's almost like if you look at confidence. For me, you've got levels of it. Yeah, yeah. You've got the, you've got the real inner core that's fundamental, and yeah. then you've got the outer layers that maybe are a bit more brittle. Yeah, yeah. The really good players, the brittle, the brittleness of it might get disturbed slightly.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. But that inner confidence, that inner belief, yeah, yeah, doesn't get doesn't get shaped. It doesn't get rattled. They could go on a three week losing streak. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. They they know they're going to be great, um, and I, I think I think somebody that's 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 willing to learn, you know, is another big one. Yeah. You know, there's many many traits I think that a that a good tennis player would have, and and John had those in abundance. You know, that yeah. competitiveness, the drive. Um, you know, I could probably name many many more.
0: Yeah very good and to take you back to the belief and confidence thing because again i'm a a big believer on that and and i think you've you've put it better than i've ever put it so i'm gonna especially when i listen back to this i'm gonna be writing that down do you think you can
1: teach belief yeah yeah i do I, i think that's part of our job as a coach yeah you know um
2: but there's there's levels of it, and that's the that's the reality, and something that we all have to accept. Yeah. But can we impact everybody? Yeah, I, I really believe that we can, and we can help instill beliefs and values
3: yes. in
2: our players, and part of that can be through our own actions.
0: Yes. Can you give me an example? Can you give me an example of, of a player, who you've, helped their belief through your Coaching style or through your relationship with them, rather than just the fact that they've won some matches and then naturally they've built built that over over time
1: I think I mean maybe we're going slightly off topic here, but I don't know, you can you can pull me back.
2: I'm also a big believer in as coaches, we we you know we prepare our players. We never talk about the scenario when they're a set and a breakdown we never talk about the scenario when they can't find the middle of the strings and they feel horrible on the court and the match just slipping away from them. You know, I think as coaches, we're very good at setting them up. Okay. You're going to get out there and you're going to do this. And, you yeah.
3: know,
2: or, you know, they're talking and they're going to do this and they get, this is going to happen, but they're not preparing themselves for, you know, what I'm going to, you know, what if I'm tight? What if I feel nervous? Okay. What if, what if um, you know, I'm out there and I am 5-2, double breakdown. Yeah. Um, Cam Norrie, I'm thinking about a, a match with Cam in, in, in Monte Carlo, a big match in the round of 16. And probably we didn't address his nerves before the match enough. Yes. And so then when he's out there and it's happening, yeah.
3: you,
2: know, what, what, you know, what does he do? Yeah. So our job as coaches, I think, and that's a belief, that, that can give confidence that we're preparing our players through that situation and it's something I'm a big believer in and I don't think gets addressed enough and it's not an easy subject I'm not saying it's an easy one to address and it takes some skill and it you know you've got to get the process right you know and maybe it's not right for everybody as well I think as coaches we've also got to we've got to be aware that it's not one hat that fits all yeah um but you know that that's something for me as as a tool that I think can help
0: players a lot. Yeah no, I, I completely agree. I mean the way that the way that I look at that as well is it's like mental fitness, you've got physical fitness, you've got mental fitness, and is your ability to tolerate. you know you're going to have to tolerate difficult moments. you know tennis is a puts us in a lot of very uncomfortable positions. and I think if you can if you can preempt an uncomfortable position then then you already are a step ahead and being able to tolerate it you know and i, I suppose if we take that as a, as a physical on the physical side if you know that you've got to run up the hill five times you've been able you're probably able to prepare your mind to be able to run up the hill five times if i tell you you're going to run up the hill till i tell you that you're going to stop it's that's a, quite a difficult <laughs> it's quite a difficult place to be mentally you know and I think uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head on a, on a really strong point on because tennis players are only ever 10 minutes out of the match you know, so, yeah. so, no, so no matter how no matter how they feel and, and they're going to be feeling difficult And if you take a set and five two at a set and five two that's been discussed with the player before the match and that's just part and parcel of kind of discussions that happen at dinner and, and you can have that belief that, you know what, I just need 10 good minutes here, <laughs> you, it, it's going to stop you having that feeling of helplessness, which I think a lot of tennis players do get. And, and, and I, I don't know if, you, if I'm on the right track to how you're thinking, Trotters, but I think a lot of players find themselves in that position and, and almost because their mind's not ready for it, it's very easy now to not tolerate what they're experiencing. And then, and then quite quickly they're caught up in a bunch of emotions that that stop them being able to kind of commit to the way that they're trying to play exactly you've got it and, and, and it's like you said
2: you talked about the fit, fitness' just the physical side of things if you've done the work yeah. and you're physically fit, that gives you belief and it gives you confidence yeah and, and players are going to have you know you've got, you've got to be resilient as a tennis player resilience is a, is a massive Key word, it's tough, and it doesn't always go the way you want it to go. And no matter how great you are, so you have to have resilience. It's it's a key skill, and for when players go through tough times or they go on a losing streak, for me, one of the you know one of the one of the areas where you're going to build that confidence back up, that's the work you do on the practice court. You know that that's the work that you do when you're sat down and you're reflecting on the week, and it's it's so important as a coach that we. You know, we view all of these areas as part of our job. It's yeah. not just turn up, you know, do the session, and off they go. I think there's a lot
0: more to performance coaching than that. You answered it better than I even wanted, Trotter. So I know you said you were going off on a tangent, but your tangent made absolute sense. Um, the the last thing I want to ask you before I've got a couple of quick fire questions. I know that we we've fallen into through the lockdown. We've fallen into a couple of kind of text exchanges on this as well and you know you know that we had Craig O'Shaughnessy on the on the podcast and you know the the game of tennis has has changed a little bit in terms of how much data is involved where where do you fall on on that side of things
2: so I mean it's a great question obviously one that's relevant to our times and, and we can't ignore stats yeah you know I think it's clear you know, the first four shots in tennis the importance of them. And I think I've, I've said this to yourself, you know, if it, if I was hands-on coaching a lot more now, I'd have a lot more f- focus around the, those first four shots and instilling and the patterns and, and uh, going through the routines and training them, probably more, more focused on it than just, you know, you go through your session, now you're going to serve a bit, you're going to return a bit. I would definitely be focusing on those areas a lot more. Yeah. Um and, and, and stats obviously have highlighted that to us. There's, there's a couple of interesting things though. I'm still a big believer in repetition. Yeah. You know, you can't hide from the repetition, you can't hide our sport, you've got to move, you've got to hit. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to be able to do those things well. Yeah. And it's a skill-based sport and, and the ability to be able to repeat. Yeah. You know, we can't lose that, you yeah. know. And and one of the discussions we had recently was about. Everybody talks about the stats with um, the first four shots. Well, what happens when the second serve's returned? Yeah. What's the average rally length? And and we've talked about this at great length. And actually, when the when the when the when the second serve is returned back in play, you've yeah. got to be ready to play a long point. You yeah. know? Yeah. Again, not all the time, but you know, there was a high percentage that came out where the rally's going to go deep. Yeah, yeah. And if if you're not if you don't have the ability to stay in those rallies and be able to execute those points well you're going to be struggling absolutely you know? and, and, and that's the reality of it and stats for me you know you you, they, you can't be governed by them yeah they're not they're not leading you yeah you're using those stats to your benefit and to interpreting them for actual things that will have an impact yeah and I think that's really, really important. You know, you, 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 they're there as, as a guide and they're there to delve into in specific, specific scenarios, really. And, and that's the job of knowing what they are, what has an impact. Everything in our sport has to have an impact. Yes. And, and if you're just looking at stats and being governed by them and it has no impact, what are you doing? Yeah. So if you're using them and you're going to look at them, let's make sure that it has a a good impact and improves the player or gives them a, a, a recognition of something that maybe wasn't there.
0: Yeah, very good. And I guess it goes back as well to you're only going to use them effectively if you know your player and are well connected to your player, understand the vision of the, the game style of your player, understand, you know, the intricate details of working with that player. I know that you do quite a bit of work with Cameron Norrie, you know, and I know you've shared this with me before on how you've helped, there's been certain statistics that you've used to help, you know, develop a certain specific area around his serve. Can you share that with us?
2: Yeah, so, so my... my... I coached Cameron briefly when he came over to, to the UK um, as, as a junior and um, kind of helped, helped in his, his move over to, to college in the States where he went to TCU, Texas Christian University, with uh, David Roditi and Devon Bowen, the coaches over there. Um, yeah. and, 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 and Cameron chose that, that school and, and that programme off his own back. I mean, and an incredible... I mean an incredible coaching set up there, I mean yeah. those guys I can't speak highly enough and, and on another topic, I'm a big big supporter of uh, college tennis in the states, yeah. uh, and that's just one of many, many great programs and coaches I think that are operating in that space
3: yeah
2: um, when when Cameron decided to leave college he um, i I was around still advising in my in my role as a as a kind of a consultant coach from the LTA overseeing the situation um, and Faku who's been with him from, from day one and is still with him now, yeah. I would kind of sit in the background um, offer, offer advice and support along yeah. the way. I'd, I'd be doing some of the trips with him to give Faku a bit of space, another pair of eyes on it and I'd be there also to maybe look into some of the stats yeah. and, and that area which maybe was time consuming or, or wasn't there. And when, when Cameron first breakthrough, break, made his breakthrough on tours, he felt like his serve was really effective at challenger level. When yeah. it stepped up onto the tour level, that it, it it could improve still. You know, and it's like all players, you know, you've got to keep thinking about development. You don't just sit still. You've got to be looking for that, that yeah. extra little bit in your game. And so we started really kind of looking into his, his first serve. And so the project we had was, we were looking at serve direction and win percentage,
3: yeah.
2: um, which was also tied into, um, so let's say we're looking at a, a slider wide, it's not just serves in, we were looking at serves that weren't in the slot, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. so what's, what percentage are you really hitting your spot yeah. and
0: what's the win percentage behind that? Is that, yeah. is that making sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So we're talking about we're talking about the ad side slider, we're talking about the T side kind of serve yeah. sorry, the yeah. G side served down the T. We looked
2: at all, all the six, all the six spots and basically how how accurate was he and how effective was it? Yeah. And this is where, you know, you know, having some stats and some information behind it were really, you know, beneficial because your coach's eyes telling you one thing. You know, yeah. you're looking at the serves maybe that he doesn't hit as well. Well, he doesn't hit that one as well. I know that. So, you know, that must be the serve we've got to improve. But when we actually started to break it down, you know, the two two lefty serves, what are the two most common lefty serves? The pattern they're going to play. They're going to serve slider T, um, which is, you know, massive pattern for the lefty. And you've obviously got the slider on the ad core wide. And when we started to look at the numbers, what what was fascinating was um, camera Dad serve on the slider was was um, you know he was knocking it out of the park, winning a high high percentage. Yeah. But his slider on the on the juice court, which was his most frequent serve, like yeah. with most lefties, yeah. he was going there most often. His win percentage was about seven eight percent down from yeah. tour average.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and it's okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And yeah. starting to then looking at the the video footage of it going through the clips, and it, and it kind of started to then jump out at us. Well, okay, he's, he's not as accurate here, so he's not hitting as close to the line. And when he when he does hit that serve, it's moving into the hit zone. He's not getting it moving away from the opponent enough. So that was one of the the areas where we, we managed to take that um, that information yeah. and use it in a way that could impact Cameron. And it, and it was pretty straightforward, actually, just giving the information Starting to try. It wasn't like he couldn't hit a slider serve in that direction. It was giving him a focus on it. And I think the end of that, that year, actually, he'd gone up from low 60s and he was winning 74% the first serves for that spot. Great.
0: It's a, it's a great example. It's a great example. And I think, like, like you say there, quite often, I think, with good players in particular, just giving them awareness giving them awareness, they'll they'll often find the small technical change, although they'll they'll find that. One question that does jump to mind when we trotters on that, that's Cameron Norrie ranked 70 in the world, 60 in the world, 50 in the world, 90, you know, he's been in and around those kind of rankings. And and obviously you're looking for real small percentage gains at that point. In in terms of I guess junior tennis, do you do you think that they are as impactful as they are at at a higher level?
2: My my straightforward and honest answer to that is no. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, is there a place for them? Yes. Yeah. But you know, you've got to be very careful. I think you know when, when you're starting to look for those, you know, it's, it's those smaller games. You know, those that can have an impact when you when you're at the top of the game yeah it's it's important and i think it's always important to be informed as a coach and some players would like some players like information you know to be able to back up um what you're what you're what you're coaching and you're using it in that way but by no means you know i think it becomes very very dangerous when you get caught up in 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 stats and especially at a younger age and it becomes all too consuming yeah yeah, no, I, I, I'd, rather, I'd rather look at are they competing completely. You know what? What are they like athletically? Are they putting themselves on the line? Yeah. You know when when they're when they're up against it, how do they respond? Yeah. And I'm I'm way more interested in, in in that kind of stuff than what's happening on his first serve percentage or
0: direction. Yeah, well, those are the most defining things at that relevant age and stage of development and, and that's definitely a battle that I, mean, I, I have that battle at, at, at the academy where you've got people that are worried about who's in their squad yet they don't give their best effort <laughs> and it's like you know the, the, what's the there's lots of there's lots of variables external variables which go into into making up a, a, a player developing but I think it's it's as a coach picking out the most defining factor at that given, given stage, you know, and I think that's where we do have to be careful getting too involved in those smaller little bits. So we're on the same page, on the same page there, Trotters.
3: Yeah. I mean, if,
0: if a player can't give their best, why are you talking about tennis?
3: Yes.
2: You, you know, it's really hard to gauge where you're at when well, you haven't put yourself out there. Yeah. We haven't seen how your backhand held up in defence, you know, today or how you were able to close out that match or what your transition game was like or, you know, how was your awareness of space and time? We, we, we've got no idea. Yes. Because actually, you know, when the going got tough today, you departed. So we're not talking about forehands. We're not talking about backhands.
3: Completely.
2: Let's actually talk about what it, what it looks like to be, to be a competitor. Yeah. You know?
0: yeah completely now we have on our on our match report that we that the players at the academy do the first rec- question that they fill in is did you compete did you prepare and compete 100% to the best of your ability today if the answer is yes move on to question 2 if the answer is no so we'll see you next time sim- yeah,
2: sim- I, I think I think that's great messaging mate I mean
0: it really is you know, simple as that. So, um, Soga talking to you about tennis trotters, you, you, you literally, um, the intelligence that you've got in this sport amazing you know and i i i learn every time i speak to you you probably get sick of me and i know that we're good mates but i always look for you on the balconies at tournaments because i i know that when i do get to see you i always pick up a, a load of pearls and um, so big thank you for today i, I am going to take you through a couple of little quickfire questions um like I've said on a couple of podcasts this took 10 and a half minutes for one person for one answer they didn't quite pick up the quick fire so uh, for for those listening this shouldn't take much longer than 20 seconds per answer maximum um,
1: first, first question playing or coaching coaching serve or return serve Dave wouldn't agree um,
0: after, what, after what you told us earlier. Um, net, net. Robert, are we talking about me or are we talking about in the game? Your, your perception of the question. Okay.
1: Yeah, open interpretation. Net play or baseline? Net play. Rafa or Roger? Roger. Serena or Venus? Serena. Grass or clay? Oh, that's a good one i've got to say grass uh, on court coaching or not
0: not injury time out or not injury time out relevant for now us open or not us open and one if you could make one rule change to tennis what would it be
1: oh i like it good one good
2: one there's a, there's a number there, mate. I mean, we we go back to the on-court coaching one. I think a lot of coaching goes on anyway.
3: Yeah.
2: So, so, you know, we we talk about on-court coaching or not. I'm not a massive fan of getting on at the change events I think a lot of people are coaching
0: from the from the sides anyway at times. You know? but in, do you think a lot of tactical coaching happens from the sides, or do you think more emotional coaching happens from the sides? It's it's, it's way more emotional. Yeah. You know,
2: but, but you when you're in the heat of the the battle, it's hard to sometimes decipher anything else. Um but that there will be tactical coaching at times, I think you know it will happen.
3: Yeah.
2: Um you know, and and, and actually you know, why not just you know
1: they've they've trialed this at the um at some of the grand slams just let it happen. Yeah. From the side or on the court. From the side. Yeah. Yeah good i like it
0: james trotman a massive thank you for for the last hour or so um brilliant amazing um some some fantastic insights and personally i've loved i've loved talking to you so thanks mate And dan i appreciate it
2: thanks for having me on and taking the time and you know good luck with everything you're doing over there
0: thanks a lot mate thank you cheers Big thank you to James Trotman for his time, for his expertise, his knowledge, and his openness. Uh, as you know, our name is Controller Controllables, and that's because that's the philosophy at the Academy that we really do believe in. And I think this story illustrates that fantastically well. You know, uh, a multiple Grand Slam junior champion who was too ill to continue with his professional journey. And he put his expertise into, into good use and has now helped many, many players. And he really is one of the best coaches that I know. Um, if you guys can, can share this with a friend, let's get these messages out there. Um, rate it, review it, please spend one minute, not even that, on iTunes. It helps get these messages into, into lots of people's hands. I think what tends to happen with podcasts, I know we've had a couple of big-name players that have had thousands of downloads, whereas somebody like a James Trotman, whose messages are so good, if the players, if the people haven't heard of the name, then they're not as likely to download it. So these ones, as much as any, need to be shared around. If your coach is out there, make sure you have a pen and paper because there's lots of of beauties in there. Um, Thanks a lot for your support. To anyone who's new to the podcast welcome we hope you enjoy we've got another 28 episodes for you to have a have a scroll through and we look forward to you joining us next time I'm Dan Kiernan my co-host is John McGann we are control the controllables